Good evening. Hello, and welcome to uh, Parallax Lecture Series. This is our 13th uh, lecture. Uh, Parallax is an online European media platform offering constructive and fresh perspectives for the post-postmodern age. We publish essays and podcasts, webinars and lectures, and are a hub for original and heterodox thinking. The word parallax stems from the old Greek parallaxis, which means to shift the viewpoint of the observer. The name suggests psychoactive and alternative sense-making as opposed to mainstream narratives and ideologies. Through our work with various European digital tribes, we create media and bildung, which means education, and promote social, cognitive, and spiritual development. Moreover, we aim to provide a European counterpoint to the dominant Anglo-Saxon narrative. That's our new spiel. So, um, so welcome everybody. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm here with Cadell Last, co-author of Sex, Masculinity, and God, uh, a wonderful trilogue with a couple of his, his, uh, his friends. Um, and uh, in the first series, we, we talked about God, and today we're going to talk about masculinity. So, um, Cadell is going to speak for a, a, a few minutes, uh, about four, uh, 45 minutes or so. Is that right, Cadell? But you got about 45 minutes or an hour prepared or something like that. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to open it up for, for dialogue, for, for engaged dialogue. So we hope you will join in and, and discuss these questions with us. Um, and, uh, and, and hopefully that will be lots of fun. Um, uh, if you are enjoying these Paradox uh, lecture series, uh, we're working on uh, we're working on a, a Patreon site. We're working on a membership system, uh, but we appreciate any kind of help or uh, or you can give us or or, or you know um, you you can uh, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, to our newsletter, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So without further ado, Cattle, do you want to tell us uh, about this very taboo uh, topic, uh, something that we're really not allowed to talk about, which is why we want to talk about it uh, on Parallax. Um, uh, masculinity, what is masculinity? What the hell is, is, is masculinity? And um, Cattle's going to take us on a little journey about, about masculinity. Go ahead. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for the thanks for the opening. Just for the continuity of the video series, uh, the first video series we talked about sex. This one's masculinity, and then next next month will be uh, God. So I'm gonna I'm gonna share my my screen, um, and and give it give it just go go straight into it. Let me see. All right. So if you can see my screen there, um, I co-authored a book with Kevin Oros and Daniel Dick titled Sex, Masculinity, and God. And um, you can visit the website, sexmasculinityandgod.com if you're interested in, in, in ordering it and, and diving deeper into the trialogues we held. Um, basically, for me, I was motivated to write this book because I was at an interdisciplinary institute and I felt like the topics of sex, masculinity, and God were kind of taboo um, and kind of... Um, you know, we couldn't have full open discussions about the meaning of these concepts. And at the same time, they were extremely important to things I was going through in my life. So I, I you know, I met I met these two fellows and we we decided, you know, let's let's dive deep into these topics and let's 
let's try to understand the meaning of these topics for the present moment. So, uh, yeah, like Andrew said, three taboos. I think that um, for the first topic, I centered on the idea that our knowledge was desexualized. The first topic was we discussed sexuality and just the idea that the, no the knowledge, our abstract intellects, are oftentimes disconnected from our sexual body and that has huge consequences for society and that has huge consequences for how we organize. Um, in this topic, I want to, you know, focusing on masculinity, I also want to sort of situate that within our current era, which is kind of a feminist era. Um, and there have been various waves of feminism, which I think constitute, um, at least in some aspects of these waves, an anti-masculine, you know, ethos and an anti-masculine metaphysics. Um, so in some sense, my engagement with masculinity is in that context. It's in the context of the reaction to existing in a feminist or femcentric world um, and the, the effects that that has on men and notions of masculinity. So in order to start, I want to sort of fully include myself in this presentation. Um, by fully including myself in the presentation, I mean I'm going to open up about how, how I, as a, as a subject, have related to both um, the masculine principle and the feminine principle in my life. Um, and to emphasize this, I want to say that sexuality is not just about the mind or the body, but really about the way the mind and the body struggle with lack and excess, what Lacan called the object petit a, um, and that sexuality is something which is situated in the sort of existential or phenomenal experience of lack and excess. Um, so around this lack and excess, dream symbols appear, um, at least in the Freudian hypothesis, symbols like king and queen represent notions like father and mother. And both of these dualistic symbolisms are kind of um, modalities or symbolic expressions of lack. Um, so that's sort of the theory I'm going to be using to sort of share with you my own particular relationship with the masculine and the feminine. So um, on the left-hand side, you'll see the father, and on the right-hand side, you'll see the mother, and in the center, you'll see a heart with a little A, which represents the lack and the excess. So on the left-hand side, I mean, I grew up with a very dysfunctional relationship with my father, um, and I could not map my self-image, or I could not map my notion of self onto the father, um, because I had a very negative relationship with him. Um, I had a very, um, you know, I had an experience of him as um, violent and I had an experience of him of extreme fear. Um, so I found myself in some sense in a constant self-mapping to other older men who I somehow could map my identity onto. Um, and I've run into a lot of neuroses over my development um, due to failures of this self-mapping process. So in other words, basically failures of idealization or failures of the ability to sort of um, both align my identity with older men that I respect and sort of build a developmental and intergenerational, healthy developmental and intergenerational dialogue with these figures. 
um, and a lot of neuroses result as a as a as a as a consequence of this failure. Um, and then I moved into a space of basically criticizing and um, you know pointing out the lack in older male figures. Um, so due to sort of failures of self-mapping, you know, at least for me, I entered into a very critical, very um, even deconstructive mode of identity where you're mostly focused on pointing out the lack in the male figures as opposed to self-mapping onto them. Um, so where I find myself now is basically trying to bring my consciousness to a sense of positive mapping in lack itself without sort of relying too much on idealizations of, of, of older men. Um, and then on the right-hand side, you'll see sort of representations of the mother. I had a sort of classical strong attachment to the mother um, as this process unfolded and the attachment shifted from the mother, it ended up becoming uh, replaced with substitutions of other quote-unquote queen figures. Um, and a similar forms of neuroses uh, emerged from failures to map onto, onto queen figures. Um, and then from this failure of the substitution, basically the lacking object, um, I entered into a state of sort of wandering excess, which coincided with the critical lack on the father side, um, where you no longer believe in queen figures or no longer believe in substitutions for the mother and find yourself in a sort of disoriented multiplicity or apathic multiplicity. Um, and now, you know, how, how, to, how to deal with that process is just something I'm, I'm going through. But I, I wanted to give this introduction because I wanted to include myself as a subject into this whole process. Um, and I wanted to demonstrate the utility in thinking about sexual difference from the point of view of, of problems with lack uh, and, and also problems with excess. But, you know, that, that's, that's maybe uh, uh, too much of a digression. Um, so let me go into the contents of masculinity itself. Um, and this, this, this presentation will be in some sense inspired by the narrative of the conversation in the book, Sex, Masculinity, and God. So in the book, Sex, Masculinity, and God, we start with the sexual real. And the sexual real is neither masculine or feminine, but it's rather the negative space between the two. Um, and you know, we've had a lot of reflections recently about one of the problems in our culture is that we no longer love sexual difference. We find sexual difference to be problematic for some reason, um, instead of seeing sexual difference as something to enjoy, something to work with, something to something that's something that's natural and normal. Um, you know, so we start off with the sexual real by identifying that polarity you know, the difference, you know, the, that the negative space charges a difference in polarity between the two. Um, this is necessary for attraction, motion, and social position. And so it makes sense that if this polarity is disrupted, you would have huge confusion when it comes to attraction. You have huge confusion when it comes to our motion as bodies. Um, and you'll have huge confusion about social positioning. Where do I position myself in the social body as a whole? because of a failure of a sort of an ability to deal with this real. Um, 
to make a further distinction, I think it's worthwhile to understand the difference between the registers of the real and the registers of the imaginary. So the real is kind of this asymmetry between the two, again, this negative space. Um, and the job of engaging with the real, with your symbolism, with your words, is kind of trying to manage uh, constitutive imbalance and disharmony. Whereas the level of the image, and I think where usually people are aligning their symbolism, um, is on the level of symmetry. So they presuppose or idealize some perfect balance or harmony, which would cover up the real um, and resolve the sexual deadlock and the polarity. Um, so I suppose what I'm saying is that in order to engage with the sexual real, you have to as much as possible bring your symbolism to kind of the pragmatic management of the imbalance and the disharmony and try as much as possible not to cover up problems in the real with images of a perfect symmetry or a balance and a harmony. Um, that being said, you know, in the context of our, of, our, of our current historical epoch, you know, the man's ability to navigate the sexual real has itself been significantly disrupted, specifically because in our era, I think the, philosoph the, the, the philosophy and the metaphysics of our era is dominated by a type of deconstructive mode of patriarchy, basically deconstructing the patriarchy. Um, and you might say that this has been happening, you know, that goes back to the beginning of the 20th century, but it really intensifies after World War II um, in the form of extreme negativity and extreme, extreme criticism directed at the quote unquote darker aspects of the masculine. Um, and the consequences for the larger philosophical and metaphysical culture is that there's a popular mythos um, that tends to be anti-logos, anti-maps and anti-narrative. Um, because we get our maps, we get our narrative, and we get our, our words basically from the masculine pole. We get that from the masculine side of the sexuation process. So in my view, any philosophy um, that is anti-logos, anti-maps, and anti-narrative fundamentally, you know, not just critiquing a certain modality of logos or a certain modality of mapping or a certain modality of narrative, um, is in some sense an anti-masculine philosophy. Um, and it's a philosophy which um, uh, is probably privileging the feminine pole, which would be more on the side of um, image, which would be more on the side of, um, uh, you know, uh, the power of the image itself, which kind of transcends or does not need expression in narrative form. Um, and we can go into, you know, maybe in the Q&A, you know, the deeper meaning of this transition. Um, of course, in popular philosophy or in the dominant philosophers of this era, you know, figures like Jacques Derrida or Michel Foucault are figures that ultimately introduce tools which are, um, you know, deconstructive in their nature and seek to um, sow doubt and seek to sow, in some sense, um, fundamental critique of even the attempt to organize the world with logos. Um, 
you know, famously Jacques Derrida's philosophy, you know, he claims that our civilization is phallogocentric, which means the phallus, the logos, and that we put rational dialogue and, you know, the structuring of the world with logos at the center of our culture, you know, and he, he sought to sort of, you know, usurp this modality of metaphysics. Um, and of course, there's good reason to, to, to do this, but I, I think that it, it, it just, it went too far in some sense. So at the same time, it's kind of what opens up the possibility for new feminist waves of, of, of activity. Um, and also a paradox of feminization or the feminist movement, I should say. Um, which is that feminism as such is kind of a strange form of masculinization, which is um, to say that the new feminist waves that appear in this deconstructed patriarchy era are waves of feminism which seek to um, position female bodies on the masculine side of sexuation and position feminine bodies as basically more masculine subjects. Um, so the way I'm saying it here in this presentation is basically the female body finds itself in masculine social positioning and the male body, for the most part, finds itself in confusion and disorientation. Because on the one hand, you're told that the masculine positioning is somehow wrong. And on the other hand, you're sort of wanting to sort of rectify historical injustices of, you know, or perceived historical injustices against women and let, you know, and let female bodies occupy any social position that they can or want. Um, so this really puts, I think, a lot of men in a very strange psychological position. And for most men I talk to, they're not even aware that this metaphysical scaffolding kind of structures and positions their bodies or that it is kind of responsible for a lot of their you know, confusion and disorientation. And it's, and it's hard to tell men about this essentially because they, for the most part, are good guys who don't want to be anti-feminine or good guys that don't want to be against women. They want to have a symbiotic, healthy relationship with women. And um, they don't realize, you know, sort of the larger metaphysical scaffolding within which their ideas about masculinity have already been conditioned in this a priori negative way. It's really a problem. Um, at the same time, of course, online, there are a lot of men who are aware of this and they have built entire communities to talk about it, to discuss it, to express themselves in various manifestations. I think the main signifiers of this um, culture are red pill or manosphere. Um, and of course, they're usually outside of institutions. Um, of course, they're not supported by institutions. Um, and they're mostly organizing themselves in virtual communities where they can sort of uh, speak without censorship and organize a new vision of what they want masculinity to be after these waves of feminization. So um, the main sort of signifier to me that defines the red pill in the manosphere is a conscious recognition of female deference culture. That is to say that men are trained to defer to femme-centric idealizations um, and not really go deeply into what it means 
to be a man, to develop purpose, vision, and a life filtered through their own desires and their own understanding of what it means to be in a male body. Um, what I've seen a lot of is a lot of men who basically castrate themselves in the psychoanalytic sense of the term, not literally, um, but that they feel a lot of guilt and shame about masculine nature. They have a lot of unconscious presupp presuppositions about what it means to be a man that is inherently negative um, and that the consequence of this is that there's a lot of depression and a lot of, um, again, I'd say disorientation, which can't find, a, which can't, um, articulate itself in a way that allows for the resolution of symptoms that appear in this, in this sort of metaphysical um, scaffolding. Um, many of the solutions that come out of the red pill manosphere are controversial, but I think the main dominant streams and solutions that come out are actually quite helpful um, I think that most men sort of have come to the conclusion that feminine reality or subjectivity in a feminine body, um, which sort of accepts the position of being in the feminine body, kind of finds purpose, meaning, and life orientation more naturally, uh, simply uh, by the fact that they have bodies which can give birth to offspring. Um, so they're ordered, their reality in some sense is ordered by the creation of a child um, and that their main orientation and their main aim in life is to kind of mediate the process of becoming mothers and having children. Um, and even though a lot of this is happening unconsciously and for a lot of women, a lot of this is being delayed, not in, the in teens or 20s, but into the 30s. Um, and a lot of, I think, Red Pill Manosphere believe that a lot of the disruption and confusion is primarily at the site of this sort of developmental um, delay in um, both women coming to terms with their own body and the desire to sort of occupy masculine social positions and at the same time have a child. Um, and that this is, this is entirely disruptive. So the, the sooner we can talk about this openly and the sooner we can talk about this honestly, the sooner we can get to a deeper understanding of the relationship between the masculine and feminine, which could again maybe reinstate some sort of real, which is different than the real that existed before the movements of feminism, but nonetheless a real that allows for sense-making as it relates to sexual difference. Um, whereas masculine reality is kind of, it has a different obstacle than feminine reality um, because the image of the masculine is kind of um, related to creation out of, creation out of nothing but themselves because men can't have babies. Um, women create out of nothing through intercourse and the vagina and then having a child and then they're neurologically bound to that child and then the image of themselves is transferred from their own sort of attracting uh, their own attraction sorry to the child and that's where their affection and intention goes um but the masculine reality kind of has to deal with being in the void itself um you know and and having to you know, you could say create something out of nothing, not with their own bodies, but with their minds um, and their words and their ability to organize with other men. So I think that the best aspect of the red pill and the best aspect of the manosphere 
um, is an, is both the recognition of a need and also a call for positive brotherhood um, that basically can confront purpose in the void and also cultivate our inherent potentials um, towards higher levels of actualization, towards um, higher levels of community, towards higher levels of service to others, um, and in a way that would take care of both women and children. Um, so how this would manifest, obviously this has not manifested yet, um, even though there are positive signs that it is emerging, I think it's the logical consequence of men being willing to accept that there's a problem and being willing to go deeply into that problem on many different emotional levels and aligning their collective struggle um, because in the aligning of the collective struggle, you can have the possibility for brotherhoods where, you know, they're not falling into toxic brotherhoods. There are various manifestations of that, um, but positive brotherhoods, which can, uh, again, confront the void itself and cultivate new potential for a new world. Um, and that, in some sense, brings us to questions of religion and theology, which is very interesting, especially for a generation of men, at least in my generation, that um, grew up in a very atheistic, a very secular culture. Um, and also, in retrospect, it's kind of interesting that the emergence of deconstruction and the emergence of the deconstruction of the patriarchy um, also coincided with a deconstruction of religion and specifically the Christian world. So if any religion has undergone um, deconstruction, I would say it's Christianity more than any other religion. It has had to weather more critique um, and more skepticism and more negation than I think any other modern religion um, because the people who, the cultures that were Christian or predominantly Christian have kind of um, uh, left it. They've uh, withdrawn from it or they've abandoned it or they've transitioned from it. Um, and I think in the void of Christianity, the main forms of spiritual expression you find are more pagan spiritual expressions um, which seek to sort of institute a metaphysics of multiplicity, of sort of um, sort of a, I would even say a sophistic culture um, where sort of individual opinion is privileged over truth in the Platonic sense uh, or even the Christian sense. Um, and that, of course, even the reason why I'm giving this talk or even the reason why I wrote Sex, Masculinity, and God is in some sense a uh, 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 my own affirmation that this pagan form of spirituality is not capable. You can't run a contemporary civilization on this software, so to speak, that there needs to be the emergence of a new type of, you know, potentially religion or theology or a new metaphysics of how we deal with, you know, the deconstruction of the Christian world, um, which is in some, which was in some sense, the phallus of the West um, in a deep sort of primal patriarchal sense. Um, at the same time, along with pagan spirituality, there is kind of the rise of what you could call a replacement phallus for the Christian world, which would be the type of scientism, um, the atheist secular culture, and that was very popular in the 90s and the 2000s especially. Um, but 
again, you see so many tensions and problems with the atheist secular scientist culture because it doesn't really allow for the formation of communities and it doesn't really engage deeply with problems of, I would say, sexuality and death primarily. Um, so I think in order to confront problems of sexuality and death, you might say violence as well, um, we need to be able to develop real conversations around these topics. And I think from these, from having those conversations, we could formulate a new hypothesis of the phallus. Um, that's basically my, my, my personal view is um, one of the reasons why I'm interested in the unconscious and studying the unconscious is really mostly to reformulate a hypothesis on the phallus. Um, so again, I want to re-emphasize here on the next slide of religion and theology that pagan spirituality to me represents a metaphysics of multiplicity and it highlights and emphasizes um, inner practice and inner experience um, or personal practice and inner experience, I should say. And I'm not against personal practice and inner experience. I think personal practice and inner experience are very valuable. Um, but it doesn't necessarily allow for the formation of social communities in a deep way. Um, and that we need to be able to talk about the problems of forming deep community. Um, and of course, in our historical culture, the monotheistic religion, specifically of Christianity in the West, was the way in which we collectively organized. Um, and it was the logos of our culture. If you went to Sunday mass every Sunday, you would be basically be getting the word. Um, and the word was something to help you organize your practical life affairs uh, and something to help you deal with the practical realities of social life and, and the human existential condition. Um, so, in that sense, the main difference to me between pagan spirituality and monotheistic religion is in some sense the view on quote unquote the word or the ontological position of the word. Um, in my view, the monotheistic religions um, have a thesis on the word, which is that it's a positive ontological force that allows for the stabilization of vision and purpose. Um, and that the pagan spiritual traditions have a more negative relationship to language, have a more negative relationship to the word, and they mostly engage in practices of withdrawal from the world, um, viewing it as impossible. Um, and in some sense, Christianity also views the world as impossible, but nonetheless seeks to cultivate an ethos and a practice of community love, communal love, um, to uh, nonetheless engage with it. So, um, how would this affect, you know, how would discussing religion and theology really go back to the sexual real and deal with gender polarity? Um, I think that one of the biggest features of the current gender struggles is that both men and women, mostly because they're in a metaphysical scaffolding that they themselves don't understand, it's unconscious, um, operate in sexual relationship with each other in a zero-sum relation. In other words, they unconsciously presuppose that man and woman cannot engage with each other in a situation where both parties win. Um, they unconsciously presuppose that one party has to win and the other party has to lose. And so there's this sort of hegemonic struggle where either you'll have women actively manipulating and trying to take advantage of men 
or you'll have also men on the sort of toxic end of the red pill manosphere world, which are actively trying to exploit and manipulate women. So it goes both ways. Um, and it's in a very violent and it's a very dangerous sexual territory. It's kind of neoliberal sexuality. Um, and I think it operates on the, again, I want to emphasize, I think it operates on the unconscious presupposition of a zero sum relation between man and woman. So the question I basically ask myself in this current tension is, what is the possibility of positive sum relationships, win-win relationships between man and woman? And I think for me, it, it would have to start with a, a mapping, a, a, a cognitive mapping project of the bodies that we have to deal with and work with. And if you're not dealing with a sort of, you know, a real mapping project of the very bodies that we have to work with in order to build relationships and sexual tension, then you're going to be lost in illusion and you're going to be lost in fantasy, which is not connected to the real. So I'm not against fantasy or I'm not against dreams or images for that matter. But if they're not situated in the real, then there's going to be a disconnect between your speech and the real, and that will end up in catastrophe. It'll end up in, in identity death, basically. Um, one of the ideas we propose in the book is um, to think about orthogonal complementarity as opposed to oppositional dynamics between man and woman. So for example, um, if you say the word strong, you would usually connect that to a masculine principle um, and the opposite of strong might be weak. So nobody wants to be weak. So woman would see strength as masculine as a sort of attack on her femininity, sort of presupposing she's weak. Um, but if you're thinking in orthogonal ways, then if you say masculine is strong, you could say feminine is soft, which is not the opposite, but an orthogonal value, um, which is very positive, where if you have a um, strong man and a soft woman, um, and they engage in a positive sum relationship where they presuppose that both parties can win, um, then I don't see in principle why the negative space between the polarity can't once again be seen as a positive thing. You know, this is the weird nature of what I call, or what Hegel called and what I use, um, negation of negation. So negation of negation is a recognition of negativity, a full recognition of negativity, but nonetheless, the affirmation that one can still function and one can still live an interesting and even deep life um, in, 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 in by confronting and accepting this negativity. Uh, for the second uh, aspect of the gender polarity, um, I think that we can see the feminist waves and we can see the postmodern uh, philosophical era defined as it is by deconstruction, defined as it is by challenge to the phallus and challenge to logos and challenge to mapping of such, is that um, we can sort of take up and include within our current culture what happened there um, as the possibilities for exploring androgynous transference. Um, it's true that in some sense, feminine, the, the feminist waves have been a a feminine taking up of the masculine and, you know, less consciously uh, than probably is ideal for healthy relationships. But nonetheless, this process is something that we can see as a positive thing. Um, I think that 
if the feminine takes up more of the masculine and vice versa, the masculine takes up more of the feminine, you can avoid traps of over-masculinization. That would be over-identification with your words or over-identification with your map or over-identification with your particular way of framing linguistic reality. Um, and then on the other hand, you can avoid the traps of over-feminization, um, which we might be seeing actually a lot in our current culture where there's this um, over-emphasis on the image and the way in which the image dominates, the feminine image in particular, dominates our contemporary online universe. Um, most of the traffic on the internet is probably being driven by the feminine image. Um, and that does lead us into problems of a culture of too much dependence on the mother, too much dependence on the feminine principle, and a um, lack of ability for men to assert their own identity and to mature, basically, cognitively mature, and to become men that can lead in, in the darkness. Like I was saying about the possibilities of men um, coming together and building new positive brotherhoods that can approach problems and build communities in a way that we've maybe never seen before, hopefully. Um, and then finally, um, I would be interested in proposing, uh, uh, and this comes up in the, the book, um, a type of quadratic categorization scheme, which operates in the gap between mind and body because I think so much of the confusion of our mapping, so much of the confusion of our ability to deal with gender uh, and gender difference comes in the gap between mind and body um, where it is possible to feel masculine in a female body. And it is also possible to feel feminine in a male body. So that's not, that's not impossible and it's totally logical um, uh, even though it's on the whole rare or less less common, I should say, than a man who uh, feels masculine in a male body or a woman who feels feminine in a, in a female body. So on the one hand, I think there's the important distinction of male and man, where male represents the genetic determination and man represents the symbolic social positioning. Um, and female represents the genetic identity of the, uh, of, 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 of the body and woman represents the symbolic social positioning. So you can have a male man and a male woman. You can have a female woman and a female man. And to me, this is at least uh, a start to thinking about a uh, geometry of, of, of identity, um, which doesn't erase the negative space and it doesn't get rid of problems of handling sexual polarity, um, but it does potentially help us to gain some sort of a deeper understanding, which does transcend the simplistic binary um, of if you're born in a male body, you're a man, or if you're born in a female body, you're a woman. So I just wanna then bring it back to my start by basically saying that sexuality operates in the lack um, between mind and body. Um, in some sense, the mind I think is metaphysically connected to time and the body is metaphysically connected to earth. Um, and so if you get one of these polarities wrong and you go into a, a deep form of extremism, you can have a, a deep metaphysical fracturing of one of these polarities. So if we're living in a feminine age, I would say that the dominant problem of our time is the problem of the mind and time.
Um, and that's what I see in sexual relationship. What I see in sexual relationship is basically the problem of time and the problem of the mind's capacity to conceptualize the space. So it's basically a, a problem of masculine masculinity. So in some sense, what I'm saying is that the metaphysical duty of the masculine is to organize a logos that makes sense for its time um, and to basically give body to the earth in, in, in some sense, in some, in some, I think, deep sense. Um, and again, just to include myself in this presentation, um, I've had, you know, incredible, you know, I'm, I'm a symptom of this age. Um, I, I had a dysfunctional relationship with my father. I had a problem with mapping onto king figures. I, I had, I, I am a product of extreme neurosis in failure. Um, I am someone who became very critical of masculine logos and the ability and the problems of tyrannical logos. Um, and I am trying to come to terms with this, this, this identity process by, again, um, trying to engage in a positive mapping project, which is directly engaged with lack itself. Um, at least that's my, that's my current position or that's, that's where I find myself at the moment. So I really wanted to include myself in that regard. Um, again, um, the book Sex, Masculinity and God covers three taboos. In the first presentation with Parallax, I wanted to focus on knowledge um, and specifically how our knowledge has been desexualized um, and that that presents many problems for our culture. You know, primarily problems of, of, of social development, um, personal development and community. Um, and then in this topic, I wanted to focus on feminism as sort of, you know, the consequences of feminism as an anti-masculine metaphysics and the way, you know, hopefully also giving a positive view on how we can view this, this phenomenon um, and how to situate it within the development and emergence of a new masculinity. Um, and then in the next presentation, I want to talk about the post-religious era and the metaphysical mysteries that are involved in existing in a post-religious era. So again, the book is Sex, Masculinity, and God. You can visit the website, sexmasculinityandgod.com. And um, if you're interested in diving deeper, and we also have a Facebook group and email list where you can stay up to date with new projects we're working on. So thank you so much. And that's, that's the end of my presentation. Okay, thank you very much, Cadell. I'm going to invite uh, the participants. Um, uh, there's also a bunch of people watching on YouTube. Uh, there's two people. I'm going to invite them to become panelists so, so we can have a conversation. And uh, we'll just see how it goes, hey? Okay. Um, so normally... Um, and we have a Q&A. Uh, uh, which is available at YouTube if anybody wants to ask questions uh, on YouTube. So uh, perhaps I'll, I'll start it off, uh, uh, Cadell. Um, your, your story, uh, you know, had, had some similarities to mine and, and perhaps some differences um, in, in encountering this like violent father and then running towards the, the feminine 
in some kind of a way, uh, except that I, for me, it wasn't the violent father that was bothering me. It was, it was, it was the the father lack. And uh, I've been talking to uh, an Alexander, uh, our friend Alexander Bard uh, said something that, you know, uh, many of the men in the men's movement are, are actually they're 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 unhappy with their fathers because they they wanted their fathers to be more like their mothers, because they didn't know that like the difference between uh, the mother. Uh, and the father and the, and so Alexander was saying yeah there's some aspect of fatherhood which is detached like the father primarily uh, wants to go off and is out there and we have to accept that the father is a little distant um, and, and, and I like that idea I like that provocation uh, at the same time it bothers me in the sense that as a father of, of a one-year-old I sort of think that 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 the father has to be also intimate intimate with with the child and and, and and so I wondered if you could you could talk about like male intimacy and and what that means. Yeah, for sure. Um, I do think that I do I do think that it's very natural for a baby to and an infant and a young child to. Um, be more in line with the mother and require more attention and presence from the mother than the father. Um, But I also think that as the child grows up and as the child matures, I think it's, I think that it shifts. I think that as the older the child gets, I think the more important the father becomes potentially or ideally. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that transition is in some sense, a transition from the safe, nurturing space of the mother's image to the um to the guidance and direction and maturity of the father's logos um and that having a man who having an older man who you can look up to as a model of how to be in the world um and having a man who can just stoically be there and hold your emotional problems um, is I think one of the most is one of the bravest and one of the most important acts an older man can do for a younger man. Um, of course, if that's your biological child, that's that's great. Um, but I think it's also important that men in general uh, realize this. Um, I think it's so important that older men connect with younger men in a, in in a way that they're trying to help nurture and bring out the best qualities of their development. Um, and that that is at least a form of intimacy to me, which is more important to me in some sense, even than deep, close connection to a woman. Um, when I've connected with, like when I've, when I've, when I've in some sense idealized an older man as someone who inspires me and someone who I'm looking to for direction, um, his acceptance of me and his, ability to, in some sense, hold my speech um, is, is so life affirming. Um, It's so, it's so, it's so invigorating. It's so motivating for all of my future projects and all of my, all of my notions of self. Um, And it also, in some sense, gives me the ability and the strength to relate to the feminine in a way that's mature. Uh, in a way that isn't kind of a recoil to the mother image in some sense. So yeah. 
I hope that I hope that helps. But I do think that I do think that the 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 sort of natural order of things is for the younger child to be in a feminine environment and for that to sort of flip. Um, and I think that because our culture has such a, I think our culture struggles so much with developmental thinking. Like that's what I've been saying lately is our culture has struggled so much with developmental thinking and intergenerational thinking because we're, and, and that, I think that that's a masculine problem because again, it's a problem of organizing time, you know, and our developmental trajectories are kind of all in a confused state because our environment is so different than our historical environment. You know, like it, it, in, in the 15th century, in the 16th century or whatever century, there wouldn't be that much change in developmental trajectory from one generation to the next. Yeah, right. So would it be an, like what age would you move into the more masculine sphere? Would that be like age two or would that be a puberty or, or I guess there's different ways to look at it, right? I do think puberty might be a good marker to look at. Yeah. Like the, the, like it's certainly that in, in, in like, especially for young boys, I suppose. Um, Cause when you, when you hit, when you hit puberty for both men, for both boys and girls, it's such a disruption in your identity. And there is, and the nature of the development is irreversible. Um, and I do think that men are just kind of left with, they're, again, they're kind of left in the void with this hugely, hugely disruptive energetic charge in their body. Um, so if there are older men that can sort of guide them in an age appropriate way, I think that that would be really healing for the culture. And I know, I know a lot of teenagers and young, young boys and, and young, young men um, are really struggling with a lot of issues about sexuality that, that, that they don't know how to deal with, you know, like, you know, issues of addiction to masturbation, issues of addiction to porn, you know, issues of, of wondering how to deal with female nature and issues of wondering how to symbolize the relationship between man and woman, you know? So if there was, if there was more developmental support, I think that would be good. And at the same time, when I'm saying that, I think that there's problems with it because the the older men didn't didn't grow up in this environment, you know, and it, and and in some sense, many of the older men are probably also struggling with issues of of, yeah. of a similar nature. I think boys get a lot of information from their mothers, and they get most of their information from their mothers, and that's the problem is they don't get the information from the dad because the dad's not supposed to give them the information. The dad's, you know, at the office or something like that, right? he's not taking them out hunting or yeah i mean and and even 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 the fact even the fact that we are we are uh, like i guess this is connected to the thesis of my previous presentation about our knowledge being desexualized because we live in a very intellectual culture in some sense um but our work is disconnected from our community life or our work is disconnected from our family life and men and women are now both by and large working. So there's this problem where children are growing up without real deep connection with either fathers or mothers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have lots of questions for you, Cadell. Uh, maybe I could open it up to other people if, if they have one. Does anybody else have, have questions here? Who's here today?
No questions, Tom? Well, maybe I could ask you this question about that, about negativity, because you said an interesting thing, and, and I know you're a Hegelian, and, and, and you think a lot about uh, the neg negativity and negation. Uh, and, and I was thinking that you, may, you, you said at one point, you said that, um, uh, you said that uh, there needs to be a full recognition of, of negativity. And I, I thought that was, uh, and that's like the, this, this humbling experience. Perhaps a boy experiences that in a rites of passage or, mm. or, 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 you know. Um, exactly. That's very profound, I think. And I also think that, um, I think that what, what, in religious traditions, when you get married and you have this third principle, you, you're getting married with a God, right? You're, yeah, you're yeah. getting married under God. Yeah. You could call that a negativity as well. You could also call it a positivity. I mean, you could call it like, okay. I would call it a negation of negation. So you could, you so, could so call you're it. Being, the problem is maybe that people, like you say, you have the zero sum thing with, with people, uh, men and women in, in, in conflict, the, the culture war with each other. Uh, and they don't have this overarching meaning for, for why they're together. Like they don't really know why they're together. Exactly. And I don't, I think that I, and even in my own relationships, it took me some time, like <laughs> I, you know, to understand why I was with somebody like, yeah. why the fuck am I with this person? And, and I kind of realized it was about intimacy uh, at one point uh, that, that it wasn't about performance and, and it wasn't about like, but, but that, that took me a while. And I, I don't think people, uh, you know, anyway. Um, yeah. Well, I think, I think, I think that, yeah, it's, it's super interesting. I do think that, so like the interesting thing of like, so I agree, like marriage is, marriage is an interesting, I, th I would call it an interesting negation of negation because like think uh, the, the word I always say is um, that it's interesting that at marriage ceremonies, you'll have until death do us part. So it is, so that would be the aspect of marriage, which fully accepts negativity so you're you like you get your limits and you get your constraints from the fact that you're you're gonna die like like we're we're I mean we're not gonna live forever and you uh, can't not just, just be with whoever whichever partner you want you're 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 bound to one person that's another negativity isn't it um, well yeah you, well you're constraining yourself yeah you're you're but like but the thing is is that the is that the, the generation today is having trouble knowing where the constraint is or knowing where the limit is. Like, so they're, they're basically doing a lot of emotional, hysterical provocation um, of the phallus to sort of test where the limit is. Like, mm. can I go here? No, I can, can I go? Why? And, and the logic, why can't I go there? Like, why can't I have as many partners as I like or just mess around with sexuality? Why can't I? Yeah. Like, what's the logic? Like, and it's, uh, and it's, it's uh, testing the unconscious. So, so if you don't have an answer to that question, people just think it, the, the entire older generation is, you know, a tyrannical and they're full of shit and, and they don't, exactly. you know, uh, right. So there's no answer to that question. We have to, we have to give an answer to that question, right? Yeah. And, and, and perhaps a religion was what used to give an answer to that question. And then, and then, and then and now, like, I, I don't know, is it the therapist who gives answers, but that, you know, who gives, who gives the answer to that question? Well, it's a good, it's a good question. I think that in the past, it's like the, the religious, the religious scaffolding gave the answer. Yeah. Um, but today what I see is people, and this is, I think people spontaneously testing their own unconscious is 
people want to discover the logic for themselves. So they, they, so it's basically they want to invent the equivalent of a metaphysical scaffolding, which religion would give them, but they want them, they want to be the people who develop it. So they want to be the creators of the metaphysical scaffolding, which gives them limit. Which is a bit ridiculous. In a sense, but I mean, I in, in some sense, I how see could that you be happening. the one to the create the, How could you be the one to create the rules for, you know, what, what's going on? How could that be you? I mean, well, there. So there is a way in which it's a symptom of, of neoliberalism, because we live in an age which is very individualistic, and we live in an age which is very egotistical and narcissistic. So there's a way in which people think they are like sort of the ultimate creators of their reality. Um, but of course, I think a few people, for example, in the intellectual deep web have made the point that the chances that you will develop a religious scaffolding, which is better and more effective than the religious scaffoldings that have existed in the past is very low. Um, and so that it sort of, it saves you time and energy to at least educate yourself. Yeah, I mean, why on, would you want to reinvent mathematics? I mean, in, in a sense, like. Well, there are, this is, but this is, this is the era of deconstruction. Yeah. So like, there are a lot of mathematics, like this is in all fields. Like there are a lot of mathematicians and there are a lot of physicists that are trying to reinvent the entire field mm -hmm. and trying to deconstruct oh, yeah. everything that came before. Yeah. Um, so there is this sense in which we as subjects are trying to locate ourselves as, you know, basically, what are my powers of creation? And like, and, and because all of the old figures of limit and all of the old figures of authority are no longer trusted. They're no longer seen as valid. Like they don't seem to have a ground to stand on. And th there is an element of truth to that. Um, and there is a way in which, there is a way in which the environment we exist within now is so radically different than the, any environment that existed before that it makes sense that we need an open space to experiment with something new. Um, but in my view, in my, so my view is we should educate ourselves on the best philosophers, the best religious traditions, the be like the best of the best. We should educate ourselves on them we shouldn't just strongly identify with them, but we should be aware of them deeply and we should try to bring them to the table and see and do trial and error experimentation. What works for our current era and what doesn't, but it has to be true to the consciousness of the present moment. If it's not true to the consciousness of the present moment, then, then I say, yeah, discard of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think I have a question. So, Kadel, I don't know. It's 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 not a very uh, formulated thought. I I tried to do this because I, you know, I'm I'm wondering what you might think about this. I tried to express that in the last talk with with Michael Butler. I think was his name, Andrew, right? The, yeah, yeah, right. And so, you know, how how do I begin? You know, it's 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 about you know this man's movements you know, and um, masculinity philosophy like in general and I, and I wonder if that's not like a paradox or if it's not invading of you know like if if, if the female uh, paradigm is invading you know masculinity so what I mean by that is 
we we as men we we always uh you know were fighting with our environment right and so we always had like to create some form of a solution for us to be to be alive and to 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 create something new and and in a way i've, I've read this this um quote by peterson that personality basically is a, a solution a new solution to a complex problem right and so like i wonder if if if, if not all this talk about you know masculinity and 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 men's groups are kind of counterproductive because you know we we have to face in any case you, you know chaos in a way and and con contest that's what with with chaos and create something new and be tested and so you know all this talk about you know you know us in, in relationship to women and 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 you know uh, postmodernity and I, I found i find that kind kind of you know um what's the word um not 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 um shit now my english is losing me um it's not constructive right so because like we have to find solutions in any case to be active and and to contend with chaos you know what i'm getting at so you know the you are you familiar with the with the life story of buckminster fuller i uh, well yes enough enough and i've i've read critical path Right, that, that's a fantastic book. So, so you know the story basically that he, you know, he he uh, uh, left left the university and his wife was dying when when he was like thirty four and his kid was dying and his whole world was like crumbling and so he he uh, contemplated about killing himself and then he decided no I will you know I will be a, my own guinea pig and I will you know devote my life in service of the world and then. What was followed was like 50 years of creative endeavors and new inventions and the geodesic dome and this and this and that's like fantastic and so for me that is kind of like the archetype of you know the phallic you know so, so there is chaos the, the world is crumbling you know independently of what everybody says you know he he created a personality in a way of to deal with the world and so he didn't have that kind of gaze you know, which is so postmodern, you know, if you, if you look at, I call this the, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but you know, you know, this, this idea of a, a therapeutic gaze, you know, so, so, you know, you have psychology coming in for 150 years and now everybody has these tools and everybody's looking at their own psyche in terms of, well, I might have this problem or I might have this problem. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's an endless circle of psychological problems you might have or you don't might have right it's it's like a therapeutic gaze you 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 put on yourself and 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 it's so feminine in a way instead of just you know just okay let's leave that all behind and just do something and that is so my 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 quarrel in a way with you know men's movements or you know because it's like of course people need sometimes therapy or philosophy but in at the end of the day that's just like okay let's get out of the house and confront chaos and maybe we die but at least we have lived right and so what do you you, you know what i'm talking about i, to, I mean i i totally agree i totally agree with you so like one buckminster fuller is a fantastic autobiography autobiographical case study for a, a phallic figure um and even the way you're framing his development is interesting right because he has to confront this absolute negativity before he can start his quote unquote positive mapping project for for me 
I was how I wanted to end the presentation was by saying, you know, and for me, when I was including myself as a figure in this, my own psychic developmental process, I sort of come to the position of positive mapping in the void, like, okay, I'm in negativity, but I'm going to I'm going to, nonetheless, I'm going to continue on my phallic drive and I'm going to try and create the best world I can. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to align with the brothers. Like, like that's even what I was saying is what I think is happening in the red pill, the manosphere movement, the best aspects of them, I think are coming to the conclusion that they need to form positive brotherhoods or as individuals, like, you know, however it's done, but to network basically with, um, other men who have gone through that same existential despair and to come out on the other side with as a phallic drive with your word and your structure as a positive ontological force. Um, So now, now the, like the only reason I feel like, well, one, I wanted to give a, I wanted to give a presentation today on the historical context of masculinity and how, at least how I see it, Um, and how we wrote about it in the book, I think that there is value in understanding large-scale philosophical movements because large-scale philosophical movements do have an effect on how society is organized and like the other people who you will be interacting with on your phallic mission, on your phallic drive. So it's, it's good to be aware at least of, you know, the kind of larger social forces within which you're situating your drive um, but I think that the, there another aspect of it is that I do think that there is some positive value in in critique and deconstruction of over masculinization because there are there is a way in which men can become um, too identified with their particular logos fantasy um, and then conversation with them becomes impossible and and they can't think of anything new really because they're just trapped in their own circle of words so there is a threat to over masculinization. And I think that there are benefits, at least for me, I've noticed positive benefits in, you know, sort of exploring the androgynous zone. But I think that that's for every individual to decide for themselves. Um, uh, so, but, but overall, I, I want to just affirm your basic um, insight, which is this over psychologization of oneself, because because that is just an endless loop of, of, of sort of um, being sort of overly self-obsessed and narcissistic as opposed to just sort of understanding yourself well enough to use your psychic apparatus in a, in a positive function. Right. And to get away from yourself in some sense. Right. And this is what I was asking, you know, how, you know, it's like because I can, because I imagine and, and sometimes I have the, the feeling that, you know, in those groups, um, you know, the, the, this internal loop of, you know, let's problemize masculinity is like it's, it's creating a known attractive field, uh, pro- you know, prohibiting people get out of the system and actually doing something. And so do, do you see that problem? Can you give a could you give a concrete example of a community that you see doing that so I can sort of relate it to to, to something? Yeah, well, in my well, own? I mean, like, take, take, you know, uh, uh, you know, you, on the spectrum, you know, the, the, the extremists, say, for example. Like know, incels? Who, yeah, yeah, like who define themselves in opposition to females. Oh, that's a trap. You know, but, you know, it's like a spectrum, you know? Yeah. So where uh, and, and, you know, 
having this gaze and this internal loop where they are not like through through the group dynamics not being able to you know actually confront the chaos and so that's that's what i was asking yeah there look if 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 you're falling into a subculture which whose identity depends on some opposite evil figure um like and i do think that there is a risk of people in our own community making the woke this type of evil figure um but like in masculine subcultures where you know women are hypergamous um women you know women are x y and z you know whatever it is the theory is about about the horribleness of women's nature or something you know and then you get fixed in your identity on this opposite external enemy this is only throwing yourself into your own victimhood loop Right. Um, so you're becoming you're becoming what you hate which is exactly what i felt like the 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 sort of the extreme aspects of the sjw's did with postmodern philosophy they became what they hated right and that and they made a fool of themselves and i think men can do the same thing yeah. men and 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 i think it's not helpful in the end like it it's 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 you're building a prison for yourself because you don't see you don't want to confront the void and you're not capable of imagining your own potential outside of you know this horizon of symbolism yeah right can i make a couple comments here uh, on sure. uh, like perhaps a defense of men's groups i mean the right kind of men's groups because oh but i would I defend that it's, too it's quite obvious what what the what the, the the bad kind of men's groups are you know, th there's this, you know, sort of posturing and, and this kind of muscly kind of thing on one hand, or there's the hate, you know, there's misogyny or, or, or there's, you know, you know, complaining about women. Uh, but in a positive men's group, there's no complaining about women. I mean, that's that that doesn't happen in my experience and or that shouldn't happen. And, if, and that's probably a, a sign that when people start to complain about women, uh, that's that's a sign of a weak men's group, I would say. And I, what what I find that is interesting about a men's groups is is you find another mode or way of being, which we've lost in the present uh, 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 culture. Uh, um, it might exist, uh, uh, you know, in some places, like uh, you know, a bunch of people sitting around the fire, uh, you know, would, would kind of in quietly, and then they would speak their truth. And that sounds kind of corny and new age and, and stuff like that. But, um, but there's one guy, I remember him saying that, you know, his, his, the men's group was so valuable to him that, you know, that, that, that he would, he would sort of die for these men. I totally support men. And, and hold on. That he would die for these men. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was the first, first thing. And, and, you know, when do we feel like that in, in, in the, in the postmodern uh, uh, culture, when do we have that intensity of experience? Well, That's actually in the military, real. obviously mm -hmm. in the military, definitely. Yeah. But, but, but if you're not in the military and, and you're somebody like me who grew up with women and, 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 and was very progressive and then, and then, and very feminized and was looking around, it's like, something's not working here. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, me, sorry, Cadell. I, I know you want to say something, but let me just okay. like put one. You know, let me put some fire into the into the you know discussion. So, like, why as a man would you go into a, a men's group in the first place? Why okay. would you do that? 
Sure. So, okay. So, I mean, I think that there's an, like, there's, there's an interesting conversation here. Like it's, it's, let's, let's try to do it as, as nuanced as possible. So let me, let me include my, let me try and include myself again into this whole process, because in some sense, I feel like it's, it's, it's cheating if you don't deeply include yourself in these conversations, because what are we talking about? Like, we're, we're, talking about our, our, we're talking about our own way in which we relate to sexual energy and gender identity and stuff like this. Um, you know, for me, um, I have joined a men's circle not to, not to sort of endlessly psychologize myself or not to demonize women, um, but to sort of get a higher order understanding of my developmental and intergenerational identity. So that's the function of the men's group for me. It's useful for me to hear another man. So I'm 30, 34. It's useful for me to hear a man who's 20. And it's useful for me to hear a man who's 45 talk to me about their particular struggles because it helps to put the context of my struggle into a developmental intergenerational lens. Whereas if I'm just by myself with my own struggles, then I feel kind of like a, an isolated, atomized, neoliberal subject. We, like, there is a way in which we are deeply tribal, like, uh, like in terms of like um, Bard's thesis of tribal mapping, I, I definitely agree with him that it's revolutionary today to be deeply tribal. And by tribal, I mean, to, I'm going to a men's circle tonight. There's no money involved. This isn't about, this isn't about career advancement. This isn't about bitching at women. This isn't about, you know, woe is me. This is about building tribe. You know, like when I think about my motion as a subject, like, okay, I go to the store and I go and buy, you know, my lunch or I go out and I walk around and I see a beautiful woman. And I want to talk to her. I'm being pulled by a primal impulse. So the primal impulse I need to eat or the primal impulse, I want to be close, sexually close. Why do I go to the men's circle? I analyze my own psyche while I'm going because it's easier to stay in bed and just sleep than to go, than to, than to take myself up to get, to get up after a long day work. I'm exhausted. And to go and 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 do this seemingly functionless activity. Yeah. And I think the reason why when I analyze my psyche is because I do want tribe. And also because right right now we're, we're we're in a way we're doing that right now. This is this is a, a mini men's group. It just arises spontaneously. Three men having a, a, a trialogue. Um, and, totally. and if there was a hot nubile woman in, in the room, it would, it would, it would, something would be different. It maybe would be better, uh, in some ways. And, or, or, you know, even if there was an older woman in the room, I don't want to be, uh, you know, vulgar here, but it would, there be a, there would be a different di dynamic. And, and this mm -hmm. dynamic is interesting. It, it's, it's not quite the same. And Look, I think it's a primordial dynamic and it's an important dynamic, uh, and, and, and some people are lacking that in their life. And that's the only reason why there's men's groups. I mean, they don't have to exist if that wasn't there, you know. Uh, is that two I mean, different things? But I think no? that in every, every community now, there should be men's groups always. Because 
because there's a bunch of adolescents running around the streets, you know, um, in, in Paris and, uh, with absolutely no direction whatsoever. Well, and, and so, so they need men's groups. I mean, they, they don't, they don't, they don't need uh, women psychologists. In my opinion, that's might sound sexist or something, but it's not. No, I get it. I mean, I want to, I want to maybe, I want to maybe affirm what you're saying, Andrew. They don't and need all- social workers. They need, you know, Deep, sorry, I'm interrupting, but deep relationships with other men. Right, I agree with you. I want to affirm what you're saying and affirm what Tom's saying, like with a maybe interesting example. So um, when I think more deeply about my development as a child and a teenager, um, (laughs) man, all my development was tribal. Like when I was a teenager, me and my guy friends, we would be together all the time. What would we be doing? We'd be playing hockey, we'd be playing basketball, we'd be playing baseball, we'd be playing football. We were out as a group doing some active physical work together. Yeah. And it was absolutely the, one of the best times of my life when I was with those guys. Um, there's something so deeply sad to me when I, when I transitioned from this phase to my young 20s and I saw that what the guys were doing increasingly was going to the bar and getting drunk and watching sports on TV instead of playing sports. So there was a way in which I lost a brotherhood there, which never, I never really filled. And like, I'm only trying to fill it now with what we're calling men's groups, but to affirm what Tom's saying, I think it is a sign of a symptom. Now I think it's still a good thing, but I do think it's a sign of a symptom when you have to name it men's group. Because like, because in some sense you're over identified, like, cause when me and my guy, when me and my guy friends as teenagers went out to play basketball or baseball, we didn't call it a men's group. We just said like, we all want to play baseball. <laughs> like, like, and we're going to get together and what's going to happen there. We're going to be guys. We're going to shove each other. We're going to play around. We're going to, you know, we develop friendships, whatever. So I think the, like one thing that would be healthy would be like, reasons to come together and have strong positive brotherhoods for like some really deep meaningful function but it might not have to call itself a men's group if that makes sense but at the same time you know it does you know why it does can i I say sure i just want to say why it needs to call itself a men's group is because in my when my grandfather you know was was younger or when i used to hang out with my grandfather at our cottage in canada all the all the men would get together and in the you know and, and hang out and, and in the morning they would go swimming at the in, in, in the in the in the uh, in the back and the women would go swimming in the front, and the women would be like unburdened from the attention of the men for a while and they they would be in sort of joyful kind of communion with each other, the women. And the men would be, uh, you know, uh, you know, doing the men thing, you know, uh, in, in another kind of uh, of co- communion. And 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 the society today, the postmodern society, would like to erase all that, which means because of ideology, and it's ideology that's erasing all that. So you need ide- you need other kind of ideology to to bring to to uh, you need to fight the ideology by 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 naming it something. So, so, so that, so that you can get it, get that primordial thing back. Uh, that's, that's how I see it. Sorry, Tom, I, go ahead and, and. No, no, I, I would like just to add something to, to both of you, because I think that's, you know, 
super interesting. You know, like when I, I don't know how much you are, you know, um, familiar with, you know, spur dynamics or these whole developmental models. And so you have like this postmodern stage and then you have like integral and then you have what, what is it called turquoise or whatever. And so the, the interesting thing is that that green and turquoise kind of looks the same, you know, because they're both communal, you know, but and, and lots of spiritual groups have this problem that they try to, you know, uh, shortcut the way from to, from green to turquoise without being actual ha having embodied that integral phase and you know if you if you look at those models it's like okay you know green and and turquoise are more communal but integral and, and modern are more like individual ag agency driven right and so what what those what those models what those groups lack is a, is a reaffirmation as of of the whole individuation process you know because you have to be communal and then you have to swing oscillate to the more individual to be able to get with individuals together on a more higher level so to speak and to create new new tribes and so you know it's like i think what we are doing is not a men's group here i, no. I don't think so because no i don't think so either so because i think what we're doing is there are three uh individuals like on, on their own trajectory, having some sense of, you know, uh, purpose, and that brings them together, maybe we can create a parallax community out of that, but it is in the deep knowledge that, you know, uh, we are, you know, within this individuation process, we are individuals, and because of that, we can come together, maybe as a new form of tribe, as a, but it's, it's, not, it's not a men's group, you know, it's, it's oh, not, no, yeah. hey, that's it's, true. It's not I, some postmodern reactionary, you know, I have to find myself, you know, and I have to deal with my masculinity in some way. No, I don't have to deal with my masculinity. And I would presume that Cadell and Henry, that you don't have to deal with your masculinity. No, you act it out. And that's a completely different thing. Hmm. And then we can come together. And we can create something new. But yeah. I, I don't want to deal with my masculinity. No, I want to deal with the world. I want to deal with both of you. And that's that's a completely different paradigm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I I I I agree with that. I mean, I I I mean I think that um there's a way in which the whole manosphere and red pill thing is a perhaps a necessary reaction and a symptom of our age. But I think that as this whole motion, as that all these social formations mature, they're going to become, they're going to start to look like a lot what you're saying, Tom, which are organizations which are, they are going to be led by men. You know, like the, the, the demographics, like the postmodern people will look at the demographics and they'll say like the men are at the top or something or like the men created this. Um, but they won't necessarily be overly identified as a man. And that's like the crucial, I make this point in Sex, Masculinity and God, which is if a subject is over identified as a man, or if the subject is over identified as a woman, I feel like that's a symptom. It's more of a sickness than a, than a, a positive thing. Like, but in that sense, I see feminism as also this weird symptom because women are, women are struggling. You know, what do I do with my female body and how do I come to terms with the fact that I'm going to give birth and what does that mean? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're, not, we're not a men's group, but we are a group and we happen to be, be men. And that's, 
<laughs> not insignificant in terms of how we're communicating with each other and, 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 and what's actually going yeah. on. Uh, That's also true. Uh-huh. But I think the crucial point is, is just that, yes, we're, yes, we're three guys. Um, and yes, that affects how we're interacting with each other, but the main focus and the main drive is not necessarily to reaffirm our masculine identity. It's more to, um, I think like with parallax, you're saying it's to shift the position of the observer and to see the world in a different way and to interact with the world in a different way. And like what Tom's saying is maybe in a more integral way. Right. Well, I think the problem with the men's groups is that they have a, they have a, cliche and an unsophisticated version of what it means to, to be a man. Whereas being a man, masculinity and femininity, these, these are not anything that can be defined, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're deep kind of, uh, they're so deep and, 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 and you, you, you discover more about them all the, all the time. You know, it's not like this is a man, he has a beard, uh, you know, or he has, he has big, sorry, nothing, I guess you're, I mean, he's, there's a man, he's got a beard and muscles and he is, no, uh, that's not what a man is, right? You can't define it. So, so, uh, so I, I think that's one of the problems with men's group because they, they, they have this, they have this, um, you know, super hardcore agenda and, and that, 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 that gets irritating, but I'm very interested in the male, man, male principle and and the female principle. In fact, I don't think there's anything more interesting than that. Yeah. I mean, you can't imagine Picasso being part of a men's group, you know, you can't really, but what you can imagine. But you also can't imagine Picasso ever existing without a bunch of really strong male painters around. No, no, but exactly. But that's what I want to say, like the Paris years, you know, where he was like engulfed with all these other individuals and Mm -hmm. creating like a a, a whole, you know, substructures, you know, a, a field of creative endeavor. But these were like, you know, all very you know, mature, I don't want to say mature, but, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, individualistic people. Well, I think that that's a, it's a great example. And I do think it's a good example to sort of self-reflectively analyze at least my experience of what's going on in the intellectual deep web, because, you know, as ever since I joined the intellectual deep web, I found it to be incredibly motivating and creatively inspiring. Um, so it has stimulated me to, it has stimulated and motivated and informed my work. Um, and I do think that we do need those communities and tribes to, to sort of find our, 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 you know, our, like, I I guess, you know, you could call them deeper brotherhoods. Um, but you know, you could just as well call them, you know, creative communities. Yeah. And there's women involved. uh, Yeah. And there's women involved as well. So, yeah. And there should be, uh, there should be probably more, I mean, in some sense. Yeah, 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 definitely. I'm all for uh, more, more women getting involved in these kind of things, but. I mean, I think ultimately once you move through all this gender stuff fully, where, where at least where my mind comes is, is basically creative community, you know, like, and, and, and how can we, how can we, you know, what, however people identify and however people relate to um, try our best to maximize the potential of every individual who is searching for actualization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I like the example of Picasso. That kind of makes me think because 
you know, Picasso was kind of a dirty old man and he, he painted all these, uh, you know, his, I saw his erotic ex, uh, you know, exhibition at, at one point and, and it was, it was fantastic. I mean, it, it was so, uh, so it kind of free, free in, in its approach. And, and that would be a very, very, very good model. But uh, um, I, I wonder how many, how, do, how many men are really that free in the internet age uh, to be that creative and, and open and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, well, I mean, at the same time, like I, I don't see people creating, I being that individualistic and creating art. I feel people are creating communities now. I, I feel they're moving into a stage of, of, of uh, communitarianism or something. Well, I'm not sure. I have to think through that. Yeah. I mean, at the, at the, at the same time, it's, it's, I'm always, I'm always skeptical of, of idealizing the past because Yes, there are figures like Picasso and Salvador Dali and, you know, X, Y, and Z. But, I mean, most people were living quite a, you know, a, quite a humble existence and working quite mm -hmm. low-level jobs and just trying to make ends meet. And um, I think that the number of people who have a, a larger existential space to create beyond their base level existential condition is much higher than it's ever been in the past. And like, for example, like, look at, look, I mean, just take me, for example. I mean, you can start a YouTube channel. You can put out anything you like. You can start your own blog. You can, you know, you, you, the tools we have to create are more powerful than they've ever been before. Hmm. Um, and look at what we're doing right now. So, I mean, I think the, I think the, the capacity to use the new technology that exists and will continue to emerge in the next few decades is sort of something we should be constantly interacting with and experimenting with to um, create new mediums of creative expression as well. Because like McLuhan, right? Medium is the message. Yeah. You, If you control the medium, then that's more important than the particular message. Like, Like I'm on the Parallax platform right now. Well, in, in the McLuhan world, we're all kind of becoming artists in some sense. Like you have to be an yeah. artist, like uh, like your whole, because you, you have to work with a total environment because the media is an environment. And, and so, so, uh, so what we would be doing now would be, would be cold media, right? Uh, there's just three guys and, and it's very low-fi low information. And there's, there's any, any kind of conversation. It's not, there's no script, uh, right? It's not, it's not scripted. Um, uh, in any kind of way, but it, but it, it's a kind of media and it's a kind of improvisation and it's a kind of communal art, which is, which is occurring in some, in, uh, in some spontaneous way. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm interested in that. Hmm. And I, I, I do share Tom's like ambivalence about men's groups as being actually very female uh, sometimes, because I think that uh, I, I noticed that also when I lived in a monastery, uh, the men become very female uh, they become very nurturing and caring for each other. They they need to develop their their female side, so they become the men become men monks become very female. And also, I noticed the nuns became very male because they had to be much more, uh, you know, directive and and than than uh, than than usual. So, 
So the men's groups often they they create they 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 could create they could create more feminine men uh, in a, in a weird kind of, kind of way. Uh, For rather me, than, rather than individualistic type of you know Picassos or. Mm-hmm. For me, androgyny is a very interesting phenomenon, yeah. um, and a very and a, and a very a very mis- a very mysterious phenomenon because we can't underestimate the degree to which our gender identity is a consequence of genital maturation. So, when you're when you're pre and post genital maturation, mm-hmm. you know you're kind of released from a certain constraint, which has been really quite fundamental for identity. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's incredibly powerful. I mean, like like why like why are why are concepts like the phallus so important in psychoanalysis? Is because if you just think about it from a from an evolutionary perspective, in your erection, you're holding an unbelievable power. Um, it, it's the entire genetic history of your lineage manifesting itself in the present moment, and and and. It's a power which can create life. So it's, it's, it's overwhelming to think about. Um, and it totally makes sense that that phenomenon is coupled with a, an excitation which drives the mind mad. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, I mean, it's fun to think about in that way also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting yeah, no, how, how men sort of get hard-ons for things, right? Yeah. They get like so stupid and excited about stuff. Exactly. And after you're like, what was I doing? And like, you know, they, you know, this like deflation, right? This incredible like, uh, uh, like oh, energy. And then suddenly, oh, it's like just, oh, you know, I suck. And <laughs> I don't know. I find that's like part of the masculine um, thing, which I don't know if women always understand, get that particularly. but Totally. <laughs> Yeah. Are you going to say something, Tom? Oh, there's a question in the chat. Ah, we have a question. What is it? Um, do you think patriarchy can be defined? Ah, yeah. That's what I was talking to Paul about, our friend Paul from Manifesto. Yeah, did, I mean, I'd be interested. Did Paul Did Paul have a response to that? Well, I had a bit of a discussion with him, uh, and and Paul's view of patriarchy was he he was saying, okay, the digital world is patriarchal. And I say, no, the digital world is matriarchal. We had this kind of back and forth. He said, well, they're all guys. Yeah, I say, well, yeah, they're all boys. They're all boyish sort of. I mean, I mean, I, I'm I'm making generalizations here, but I'm talking about the Silicon Valley Facebook. You know, he he described that as as a patriarchy, and I thought that was wrong. I thought that's not a patriarchy. I mean, if he was trying to make the term patriarchy a noble term rather than a, uh, you know, an insult, which is the pop culture thing today, but perhaps there's a noble version of patriarchy, which which could be could be discovered. Well, th- there's an anthropolo- there's an anthropological definition of patriarchy, which is a system of society where uh, lineage is is tracked through the male line. Mm-hmm. So like that, that's the, that's the anthropological definition, whereas it is, is you, you literally are structuring the society by the quote unquote name of the father. Yeah. That's the standard definition, isn't it? That's the, that's the anthropological definition. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I do, I do think you see people trying to mess around with that. I mean, of course, you know, feminist critique of the patriarchy, like there's a few different angles you can take it. So like the feminist, feminist view of the patriarchy is basically in a mode of power distribution. 
that there's an asymmetry in power and that power is being concentrated in the public sphere through men and that this is barring access for female bodies. Um, then you could have the philosophical definition of the patriarchy, which I think was defined by Derrida, where he said it's phallogocentric. So that would be that it's, it's basically the phallus and the logos, and that we organize our society through phallic-driven speech. And so he was viewing that from a deconstructive mode where, where I'm saying we should see that as a positive ontological force, which has to constantly be renewed for the present moment. Yeah. And I also, when I was talking with Paul, I said, we also have to define what a matriarchy is. And if we're going to have a patriarchy, we also have to have a matriarchy. You can't have one term without the other. And a matriarchy seems, has to be, you have to have a noble conception of what a Matriarchy is, even though on a you know on a societal level there weren't that many matriarchies, uh, you know, in an anthropological level they, they didn't really exist. Um, but on the other hand, there were still powerful females behind the scenes, which which might not be in the public sphere, but certainly there were powerful females uh, always in, in the private sphere. Well, I, I, there's another there's another comment by Adrian which I'd like to respond to, which he says, because if you say matrix, if you, so this is I think in response to what you said, Andrew, as he said, because if you say masculinity can't be defined, then patriarchy can't either. I think, and so I can give him something here from psychoanalysis because uh, I always say Freud Freud famously said that masculinity and femininity were concepts that were poorly defined. Um, however, in psychoanalysis, the libido is linked to the masculine principle. And if you go deep into what he means by that, what he basically means is the uh, act. It's basically an active principle. It's this active pointing outwards. It's kind of like how Tom was describing Buckminster Fuller, just this active, you know, this active force of logos. Um, and I think that that would be my close. That's how I presented it in the presentation as well, that masculinity is sort of connected to logos, narrative and sort of active narrativization. Whereas femininity is seen as more of a passive principle and a receptive principle and constituted by sort of the formation of an image. So I think that those two are at least good starting points for me. I mean, if you go to ground zero of like, for example, like take, for example, the pickup artist community, like in the pickup artist community, you see sort of ground zero of masculinity and femininity kind of working itself out. And what happens there is you have men being trained to use words properly and to act out in the world. And you have women who are being targeted for their image and their passive receivers of the word. So I think that that acts itself out in, 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 in various ways, but I, I mean, that's, that's sort of my thinking on it. I mean, Buckminster Fuller and, and Picasso are both outliers. If you have like seen those videos from Buckminster Fuller, he was just manic, you know, it's like how, how he talks and how fast and like how, you know, you know, all this, this stuff he was thinking. And I think like Picasso did like, I don't know, what was it? 70,000 pieces of art in his life. That's a lot. But I, but I was wondering if you, Cadell, if you have seen like this video with, with um, Douglas Murray, where he said that, you know, this obsessive um, dealing with transgender and, you know, what, gender in, in general is a sign of, of the end times and and you know it's like he's, he, his argument basically was that um, 
you know, one of the signs uh, a civilization, when, when a civilization is, is falling, historically, is when people obsess about, you know, the differences between men and women and transgender ideas come up, maybe in form of hermaphrodites or something like that. You see that in the Greek cultures, you know, so, you know, because, you know, all that was... Uh, where, where, were bound, uh, where, where previously were boundaries, you know, now it's, it, it fragments. And, you know, he sees that as a, as a, as a sign of, of society falling apart. And so he sees that especially as a sign that the United States will fall apart in the next couple of hundred years. And so what do you think about that? Well, <clears throat> I know that people often say that about Rome as well, isn't it? Right. Um, I mean, I don't want to come to any, I don't want to come to any strong conclusions about the meaning of androgyny because, um, here's the weird thing. So let me put on my like deep philosophy hat for a moment. Um, and just sort of why I'm like a little hesitant to give a, 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 a too quick conclusion. Um, in the biological world, the cycle of reproduction seems to be sort of um, a self-sustaining closed loop, which means that if the Earth and the solar system were to exist forever, then I would suspect that biological life would just continue to reproduce itself indefinitely. Does that make sense? So, of course, the solar system and the Earth aren't going to exist forever. They're going to... Eventually, they'll they'll implode and so biological life will won't go on forever it's it has a time limit from the constraint of the planet and the solar system itself however when it comes to human beings and reproduction i see a kind of break or a discontinuous rupture as it relates to reproduction so basically because and this is my hypothesis is because we're linguistic and because we have culture and language, there's a trade-off when it comes to the energy and the time that we put into reproduction biologically and the energy and the time that we put into reproduction culturally. And as we become more abundant, as our culture becomes more abundant and technologically sophisticated, the developmental delay of reproduction keeps getting pushed back. And if you go into the evolutionary literature, this pushing back of reproduction has happened for millions of years now. If you look at the great apes, the great apes reproduce much sooner and have less parental investment than the early hunter-gatherer tribes. And as agriculture emerges and industry emerges, reproduction gets pushed back further and parental investment has to increase for the quality of the children instead of the quantity of the children. Now with feminist waves, you have entire epistemological structures which are trying to take women outside of reproduction. And you have an entire generation of humans who are choosing not to have children. In terms of the evolution of life, that is such a remarkable, strange phenomenon. It does not receive enough attention because if that was to ever happen in a biological animal population where there was an abundance of resources, they would reproduce like mad. 
Right. Is that very famous studies about that? If you have biological animals in a highly abundant resource population, they undermine their own resource base because they reproduce too much. But humans are doing the opposite of that. When we have high abundance, we actively take ourselves out. So I, and, and then I try to connect this to theories about transhumanism, where they saying through technological modification, we are going to transcend the very process of biological evolution itself. So I just have questions here about the function of androgyny. Is androgyny actually the location where consciousness tries to push itself beyond biological evolution? I, these are just questions for me, but these are the types of things I'm, I try to think. Well, it's interesting, like... Um... In the yoga tradition, I, I heard somebody say that, uh, you know, in the yoga, the yogi has to become fully male and fully female, which means fully androgynous, right? In other words, this, the complete expression of humanity is, is not a polarized male and a polarized female, or it, 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 it's both, like uh, uh, within one person. Um, um, and I, I told that to somebody, you know, Alexander, he was really pushing back on, on that, but, but I still think there's something to, 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 to the, that in the sense that a complete person, if such a, a person exists, is able to fully, uh, you know, uh, embody the opposite uh, of himself and fully understand the opposite of himself and fully have fully, um, you know, that, that's, that's completion. Uh, by by definition, which doesn't mean that the process ends. It just means that 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 this sort of male female dance becomes becomes a kind of uh, unity, uh, which 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 I don't know, uh, which this, which uh, which which is 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 all, all completely creative at all times, which is like enlightenment or or something like that, or like like um like like a full realization of of creativity. Because it's not biological creativity in the sense that you're, 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 um, you're chained to the, um, to the reproductive cycle. It's, 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 uh, you know, a creativity, which just <clears throat> continues and continues and continues without any of that. Absolutely. <laughs> well, birth or death even, uh, but that's, you know, what, you know, that's, that's getting on to the mystical level of, of things, which. But in, in terms of, in relation to transhumanism, the question is if, if, if we actually want that, Kadal, really to, to be in that state of un, being androgynous, you know, is, is that something that we would want? Well, that, 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 yeah, that's, that's a quest, that's the question of desire. Is that, is that the, is that the authentic developmental pathway or not? Um, and I think that the, the types of phenomena that Andrew's pointing towards with spiritual development can be seen in many different religious traditions where people who are striving for enlightenment and choose to take themselves out of the marriage pattern with reproducing biologically, um, they do sort of tend towards forms of identity which are beyond either the man or the woman strictly. Um, so that's not, that's kind of, that's, that's a, I think that's even a, like the shamanistic figure yeah. Or the the you know the type of shaman or the androgynous type that Bard talks about is a kind of pushing of identity beyond tethering to biological reproduction. Um, so I think it's I'm I'm just mostly trying to provoke and just just like I'm in, I'm interested in it. I, I like thinking about it. Um, uh, but Mads has an interesting um, question, which maybe you, we could unmute him if he wants to ask it. 
Is he here, Mads, or is he in the YouTube? Uh... He's in. He's in um, oh, the Zoom. Oh, he's here. Yeah, yeah. Mads, would you do you want to unmute yourself, or would you prefer that I read that read the question aloud? Uh, okay, so I'm not hearing from him. So so I'll, I'll just I'll just read it. Um, oh wait. Are he, you says there? Not, he says he's not appropriately dressed. <laughs> okay. Can, can you read it though? Do you want to read your question, uh, uh, Mads? He's unmuted. So. Yeah, he's unmuted. So that's why I was asking. Okay. But anyway, we don't hear him. Okay. I'll read it. I sometimes feel that the masculine demand for meaning and purpose comes across as a symptom. For example, to me, it seems like a person like Jordan Peterson is covering up his, his anxiety by demanding meaning in an almost hysterical way. What are your thoughts on the idea of being on purpose? And could another way of being come through positive nihilism, the masculine accepting what it is and going beyond purpose, holding the space gap? Sorry, I'm not appropriately dressed. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, that was because he uh, wasn't yeah. coming on with the camera. But anyway, I, I, that wasn't part of the question. <laughs> I think Mads. I think Mads missed my presentation itself. But Mads, I, I concluded the presentation by saying, basically, that for me, the job of the masculine identity is to sort of confront the void and engage in a positive mapping project, uh, inclusive of negativity. Um, and but I want to respond precisely to your question on. Um, the masculine demand of meaning and purpose coming across as a symptom. Because I think that that was related to the discussion Andrew and Tom and I were having about mm. um, men's groups and identification with men's groups. So in my experience, if, if you're talking too much about meaning and purpose, it's a problem. I think if you're actually living a meaningful and purposeful life, you don't need to talk about it. You just are doing it. Like, for example, like my academic drive and my intellectual drive has been so authentic that I've never had to say to myself, I'm living a purposeful life or I, I have meaning or I'm like, or even like, it's, it's kind of like, if you start talking about meaning and purpose, it's a sign that you're symptomatic already. So it's kind of, so it's, it's kind of like once it becomes, it's kind of like what, Tom, you were saying about the over-psychologization of self. It's kind of like if you're paying too much attention to it, if you're becoming too self-referential about it, then it's you've kind of lost it. That's why you're talking about it. Yeah. What about Peterson, though? <laughs> you mentioned Jordan Peterson, and, and he's always an interesting guy to think about because yeah. um, obviously he's responding to nihilism, right? Yeah. Mass nihilism. Well, I think Jordan, I think Jordan Peterson is talking about meaning and purpose because he's speaking to a generation of men and women who um, don't feel like they have it. So I yeah. feel like in some sense, he is trying to fill the gap and is trying to, you know, sort of remind people that you can't just worry about food and water and shelter and sex. You also have to pay attention to the meaning of your life. Um, and there is a, you know, and at the same time, I do feel like there's something about Jordan Peterson's identity, which is um, sort of um, overly identified with the masculine and overly identified with sort of certain aspects of the, of, of the search for meaning and purpose. 
but I also don't really want to overly criticize him because it's kind of like a meme to criticize him now. Whereas I feel like the amount of good that he's done in the world and the, and the, the number of men, including myself, that he has helped is, is overwhelming. So I feel like he is a positive ontological force in the world overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that, I think. There's a, a YouTube question. Should I read it? Please. Okay. Uh, I read that up to 10% of young people identify as non-binary today and rising, which I, th- uh, which I think is another symptom for the struggles of being masculine or feminine. What do you think? It is rising. Non-binary identification is rising. So that in the end of my presentation, I said that I felt like I, I proposed a quadratic categorization scheme. So to me, the quadratic categorization scheme overcomes problems of multiplicity. So like just saying I'm non-binary is kind of a negative placeholder against being a man or a woman. Um, But for me, I think it it could be interesting to explore, you know, like the fact that at least the people I've encountered is you can be a masculine man, you can be a feminine man, you can be a masculine woman or you can be a feminine woman. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're you know, just a negation against traditional masculinity or femininity, it could be that there's a gap between your symbolic representation and your biological body. Um, And also in regards to the rise of androgynous identification, I don't think we should underestimate the anxiety of neoliberal sexuality. Because in, in in when when sexuality is free of all regulation, when sexuality is under this complete neoliberal model, um, there's a way in which sexuality can start to feel like a prison and you can start to feel like you are in a, a, a zero-sum competition with, with the other sex and also that um, you can come to realize in your consciousness just how unfair free sexuality is because, look, attraction is not... Like it's not a, it's not a, there's no a such hor- thing. Is there it's a, not a horizontal field. It's not, it's not a horizontal field. It's, it's radically unequal. Like there are some people on this planet who get all the sexual attention. And there are some people on this planet that get no sexual attention. And that's, and that's vicious. And so there's something about that viciousness which I think leads people to non-binary identification because they just want to escape the symptom of that. That's a great point. Yeah. yeah. I think that's right. I mean, if you're, if, 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 uh, if sexuality is always an economic trade-off of some kind, like, a, like you say, a zero sum yeah. game, then, uh, and you're always playing this game, then there's, there's always winners and there's a lot of losers. Yeah, but that's not a way to run a a, a world or a, you know or a system. No, yeah, not at all. Uh-huh. Not at all. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's why that's why we're talking about that's why we're talking about like religion, theology, collective society organization, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, I don't know if there's any. We have five minutes in our, uh, left in our scheduled time. Sure. And we've been pretty good at keeping it kind of like, uh, I feel like this conversation could go on forever practically, but, um, 
but we've been pretty good at keeping our time. Um, does, is there anybody left who has a, a, a there's There's someone named Moran in the Zoom who asked a question. Someone named Moran, okay. Oh, it's to me, it's to me privately. He's, maybe he did that by mistake. That's Tom. That's Tom. That's Tom. He's talking. He had to leave for a second uh, oh. to get some food. Um, okay. Uh, well, then there's no more. If there's no more questions, I did, yeah. The last question might be like, what does sexuality look like in in the tribe? Um, what does know, we're, yeah. we're, we're, we've been talking about tribalism, and we talk about this a lot, and about how we have to re- discover community and and all, and all this sort of thing. So, so how does sexuality? What does it look like in in a, in a tribe? You know what? I mean, it's it's such a big question. It's it's hard for me to summarize or imagine it. But like, and I think that there's a little bit of um, romantic idealization about about sexuality in the tribe with contemporary sort of books like um, Sex at Dawn by Christopher Ryan, where he's arguing that when we were in the tribe, we were just polymorphous, sort of like open, open relationships. Everyone was kind of having sex with everyone else in a very non-neurotic way. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, that would be a hypothesis that Freud would definitely disagree with, because in Totem and Taboo, Freud argued that tribes regulated sexuality through identification with a totem. So if you were, so basically, if you were part of the shared totem culturally, then you couldn't have sex within that totem tribe. Mm-hmm. So you had to have sex sort of as a boundary negotiation with another tribe. Um, but sex within the tribe was kind of regulated um, and 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 reduced, you know, like it, so because, you know, basically because of problems of violence, mm-hmm. you know, because it, and because sexuality is so inherently unequal. Yeah. Like, yeah, people, well, that, that's what I really wanted to talk about that. And I totally forgot because we've been talking about what comes first, like sexuality or violence or violence or sexuality. I think uh, they're mutually implicated. Yeah, and I was thinking about the the I was thinking about Genesis, and I and I was thinking about the story of uh, you know sexual jealousy as the beginning of the fall, uh, you know, which then leads to the story of Cain and Abel, which then leads to 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 to, to violence. So I wonder if sexual sexual jealousy is really the, the beginning of, of 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 human violence, and and, and uh, so that's just a thought. Yeah. Yeah. I think someone. I, I know Moran has Moran's left his uh, comment in the in the in the chat in the chat, and there's another guy Diego who I think's trying to talk. Diego, do you want to say something before we go? Last I wanted question. to say hello. Hey, Diego. Um, I kept hearing that there were only three, and I wanted to say that there's more here. <laughs> huh? Yeah, we've we've got quite a few panelists now. Okay. Yeah, there's there's uh, there's eight people uh, as panelists, and there's a bunch of people watching on YouTube. But well, thank you for uh, for um, pipe, piping in. Yeah, yeah, I felt it would be nice to acknowledge other people in this space. Sure, sure. And... Yeah, this kind of uh, turned into a bit of a trialogue, um, and people were commenting in this space. But I, I wasn't because, I wasn't always sure what was a question and and what becomes wasn't. like a panel, and and we are basically. Uh-huh. Um, here mm-hmm. so, well uh you're, you're, you're free you're free to ask a question uh, diego if, if you have one um, well i don't have a question uh, i just wanted to say hello and uh i know we're coming to the end now so but ha- you must have all read jitterbug perfume 
that just came to mind when you were speaking earlier about patriarchy and matriarchy because i touched on that that's like tom, tom robbins, robbins or something is that yeah. Tom Robbins? yeah mm-hmm. it was such a long time ago but it's a great novel and it, it presupposes that there was a time before when there was a matriarchy and as a reaction to that emerged this patriarchy it's this idea of cycles and it's like this tug of war and mm-hmm. i think they try to reconcile that not these two characters in the book but it seems that in the natural order of things if we if we find ourselves and if it's safe for the other to be then perhaps we can rather than this constantly sort of one consuming the other or one one existing at the cost of the other <clears throat> there seems to be this war no i mean with feminism and that, and, and and we've sort the pendulum swing seems to swing so if between a hyper masculine and a, and a hyper feminine society in a sense yeah or, or a matriarchal and, and and patriarchal you know between feminine and masculine and how can both exist all right how can both well, I, exist why well, I, I, well, I don't I, I mean I don't know if you were I don't know if you were here for for my presentation but I sort of emphasize that in the in, in my analysis, at least of the current gender relations, it's kind of people are interacting with each other sexually as if it's a zero sum competition where it's a win lose situation. So it's in this sort of oppositional battle. But I think that we have to look for the possibilities of positive sum relationships between men and women. Um, and I guess my thought for how we would start that or how we could work towards that. And in some sense, it's already, I mean, it, I mean, it's all maybe wording's the problem but that a way to go about finding positive some relationships between men and women is to start with a mapping projects of the bodies that we have to work with um and a recognition of sort of sexual difference um and then if we can be deeply aware and deeply conscious of our differences in bo- embodied con- consciousness then there's a possibility to think what would be positive some relations in this current environment okay let's leave it at that um uh, so thank you very much, Cadell, uh, for a, a wonderful uh, uh, conversation, I thought. Um, and uh, we, we look forward to hearing back from you next month where you're going to talk about God and, and your final triad of taboo, uh, uh, impossible uh, subjects. Um, uh, so, so that will be excellent, I'm sure. I can't wait to, uh, to talk to you about, about, about God and uh and uh, to, to finish this trialogue. And we'll also see you, I think it's Friday night, with Raven and Alexander Bard. Uh, we have a four-person uh, uh, panel. The four of us are going to talk on the Sweeney versus, Bard, Bod, Sweeney versus Bard podcast. And then we're going to invite people uh, uh, for Q&A um, uh, in the last part of it. So, so, so that's going to be awesome. And uh, if you love this and you feel like supporting us on Patreon or any kind of support, uh, uh, um, you know, signing up for our, our YouTube uh, or uh, we also have a podcast now, you know, uh, we're also on the podcast network and we have all kinds of 
projects and plans uh, for Parallax. Um, and we're really, really happy uh, for Kar Kadel, one of the brightest, you know, voices out there, in my opinion, um, to, to be coming here and speaking to us. So thanks so much, everybody, and uh, good night. <laughs>